Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, it's our custom to make sure that we're in fellowship. Scripture says that when we sin, we grieve, we quench the Holy Spirit. This opens our soul to the uh, dominion of the sin nature. It opens our soul to the influx of human viewpoint ideas, and it, it retards and stops our forward momentum in the spiritual life. But when we confess our sins, Scripture says we're forgiven of all of our, tres- uh, of all of our sins. We're cleansed from all unrighteousness so that that ongoing spiritual life maturing work of God the Holy Spirit is activated again and we go forward. The Holy Spirit is the one who helps us to understand God's Word, stores it in our soul, recalls it to memory. He's the one who uses that to produce spiritual growth, so it is important to make sure that we keep short accounts on our sin and make sure that we are in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we have your word that reveals to us that which is going on in human history in terms of your plan and purposes. Your word is what reveals to us the existence of angels and demons. It informs us about the uh, plots and the purposes and the procedures of Satan, and it enables us to understand that our spiritual life is not lived in a vacuum or in isolation, but that we are part of this great conflict, and in fact, we are a target in the conflict. And whether we realize it or not, like it or not, want to acknowledge it or not, we're very much a soldier in this spiritual warfare. Father, we pray that as we study your word today, that God the Holy Spirit would use it to challenge us, to strengthen us, to prepare us, to give us greater insight and understanding in how we too often are influenced by Satan's cosmic system rather than your word, and enable us to be stronger and more consistent in the application of the principles of doctrine in your word to everyday problems and situations in life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we're continuing our study on the angelic conflict as part of a sub-series within our study of Revelation. 
We got into this because Revelation talks about almost a third of all of the references to angels and demons within the within the Bible. In fact, it is very much a part of this whole concept of spiritual warfare and brings that to a conclusion. So as in preparation for getting into the main section of Revelation in terms of the uh, three series of judgments and the involvement of angels there, a lot of that just isn't going to make a lot of sense unless we have this framework. So I'm taking the time to go back over this framework. Now, one of the things that we have studied is that there are a series of assaults on the human race by Satan throughout history. We have taken the time the last four or five weeks to look at the direct assaults of Satan down through uh, the history of the human race. These direct assaults begin in Genesis chapter 3, where Satan tempted the woman. The woman, of course, disobeyed God and ate the fruit. She then offered the fruit to her husband. He, in turn, disobeyed God. And since he was the head of the home and the head of the race, that was the determinative decision, and the race fell into sin. As a result of that, God pronounced a judgment on Satan through the serpent, and in that judgment, as we've seen many times in Genesis 3.15, was the uh, embedded gospel. It's the first first, uh, indication of the gospel in the Old Testament, where God says that there will be a curse on the serpent and that the uh, seed of the serpent would crush the heel of the seed of the woman, a non-fatal wound, but the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And last time I traced that out down through history, showing how Satan thought he had a victory at the cross, but it turned out to work to his own ultimate defeat, because it was at the cross that the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, defeated the serpent in terms of the strategic victory of the cross where Satan is defeated. That puts Satan into another mode of operation, another uh, strategic objective in the period after the cross, because before the cross, his focus was to prevent the seed of the woman from coming. Now he has other objectives, as we will Uh, go through in this study. So there were a series of these direct assaults in the Old Testament. There was the Genesis 6 assault of the sons of God on the daughters of men. And then when it comes to the time of the incarnation, we have the direct assault on Christ, the temptation in the wilderness, uh, numerous demon possessions during the time of Christ, the ultimately uh, leading up to the satanic possession of Judas, Judas betrays the Lord, and the Lord is crucified. This, of course, is the ultimate victory of God in history. Opens the door for the church age, which we are now in. The church age will end with the rapture of the church. This will be followed by the, uh, not immediately, there's some little transition period there, but it will be followed by the seven-year tribulation where there will be three direct demon assaults, three direct demon assaults on the human race. 
culminating in the Battle of Armageddon, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, defeating Satan, casting the false prophet, the Antichrist, into the lake of fire and binding Satan for a thousand years. Satan will then be released at the end of that thousand-year period and lead one final revolt, the Gog and Magog revolt against God. All of that we covered last time and finished. Now, this morning I want to begin to look at the indirect Assaults. Now, this has a much more insidious implication and application for us when we look at these indirect assaults, because you and I are assaulted daily, hourly, maybe even by the minute, by demon influence. And yet, we are not often thinking of it in those terms, and we have often sort of immunized ourselves to that, and we have become anesthetized to it and don't think of it in those harsh terms. So we need to sort of pull ourselves back and begin to look at things from a more uh, biblical perspective. So we're looking at the indirect attacks of Satan, often referred to as demon influence. Now remember, Satan's strategy... His ultimate strategy, his overarching objective, his overarching goal is to demonstrate that he can rule the creation as well as God can, if not better. So he has designed his objectives in time and in relation to the human race to discredit God on the one hand and to demonstrate his own capabilities on the other hand. In terms of discrediting God, Satan attempts to prevent God from accomplishing his particular goals. He wants to keep God in the Old Testament from ruling the planet through his designated servant, Adam. He's created Adam as a vassal to serve God and to be his vicegerent to rule over creation. So Satan wants to prevent God from accomplishing his ends uh, through mankind, so his objective was to usurp the rule of the planet. This occurred in the dynamics of the temptation and the fall, and he was victorious in that. He is referred to in the scriptures as the god of this age. That is referring to more of a time period. Uh, he is the prince and the power of the air. He is the uh, god of this world. He is the one who uh, empowers fallen mankind, and his rebellion against God. So his initial objective was accomplished in the fall. Following that, he goes on to have subsequent objectives. For example, one is to distract mankind and to blind mankind from the truth. 2 Corinthians 4.4, that the God of this age is blinding the minds of men to the truth. Now, how does he do that? Does he just sort of directly zap into your head and, and put blinders on it so you can't understand the gospel? Or does he do it through an indirect means, through the thought systems of the world? Furthermore, if, if Satan is the one who is blinding you to the truth of the gospel, then what about the impact of your own sin nature? Doesn't that have a role to play? Are we just going to say, ah, you know, the reason I didn't understand the gospel is Satan was blinding my mind. It's not my fault. It's his fault. 
or is, the, is it working together in tandem? Well, we'll see that these things work together in tandem. They're, it's not one or the other. Both are true. Both are operating in uh, antagonism to the human race. So one of his objectives is to distract us from understanding the truth. So that one of the best ways to do that is to trot out a whole array of competing truths. Competing truths that are complete with their own rationales, their own philosophical or religious support systems, uh, very sophisticated systems that can engage at every point that which God reveals to be true. So Satan is no dummy. He is the brightest, smartest, most intelligent of all of God's creatures. And so he is devising thought systems, religious systems, and philosophical systems that easily deceive and entrap mankind into false ways of looking at reality and understanding who he is and understanding uh, the world around him. The three major elements that you look at in any of these is how any system of thought views God, how that system of thought views man, and how that system of thought views nature or creation. That's the just we'll start very broad here this morning, just an introduction to this, and we'll gradually get into more and more specifics as we go through the next two or three weeks. So Satan attempts to uh, distract man from the truth through these various thought systems. And then in the Old Testament, his objective was to prevent the seed of the woman from arriving and accomplishing God's strategic ob- objective. In that, he failed. He was successful in the garden. He has been successful in generating a plethora of false philosophies and religious systems, but he was unsuccessful in preventing the seed of the woman from coming. In the New Testament, we see a shift in his tactical objectives because he has lost the major strategic objective at the cross, but he still has a last gasp chance. He is going to try to attack both the church and Israel. He needs to attack the people of God during the church age, specifically in relation to God's purpose for church age believers. God's church purpose for church age believers is for you to grow to spiritual maturity so that your life can be a trophy of God's grace. Your life can be an evidence in the angelic conflict, in this trial against Satan, that God, following God and being completely subordinate to the Creator's will is the only path to happiness, to meaning in life, and to real joy and success. And every time we apply the word in our life, we are just building that testimony. And so Satan's objective is to distract you, to get your eyes off of God and onto material things, onto the creation itself, or onto yourself in terms of arrogance, self-absorption, and everything else that goes with the focus on self. So in terms of his objectives in the church age, he continues to blind unbelievers from the truth. This leads to what we often hear today. You hear uh, pundits, news media people talk about the fact that we're involved in a culture war. 
Well, Christians have always been involved in a culture war because there is a warfare between capital T truth that is revealed in the Word of God, which we sometimes refer to as just Bible doctrine. Other times we refer to it as divine viewpoint. But it is what Jesus refers to as truth in John 17. He talks in his prayer to the Father. He prays regarding Christians, sanctify them by means of truth. Your word is truth. It is a truth that incorporates and encapsulates every dimension of life. It is in and of itself a truth that is sufficient. Does that mean it answers every question you have? No, it doesn't. But it gives us the framework through which to understand God, man, and creation. By going to the Word of God, we have the starting point, the framework, the platform on which to build our understanding of God, creation, and uh, mankind. So there's this truth war that leads to a culture war. A second objective that Satan has is to attempt to prevent God from fulfilling his promises, specifically the promises he made in the Old Testament to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their progeny, the Jewish people. He is seeking to prevent God from ultimately bringing them to this piece of real estate in the Middle East that is described in Genesis chapter 15 as being bounded by the river of Egypt on the south, the river Euphrates to the north and northwest, and the Mediterranean. This incorporates a huge amount of real estate, including real estate in uh, modern Jordan and modern Syria and part of modern Iraq that is that has never been under the control of the, of the seed of Abraham. So Satan is trying to prevent that from ever being brought uh, to pass. And if he can prevent the Jews from ever, from ever occupying the land, then he has demonstrated that God can't control his creation either. So he wins by default. It's no uh, coincidence that we're engaged in wars in, the, in recent years in the Middle East, that there has been so much turmoil in the Middle East. There is and will continue to be turmoil in the Middle East because once Israel returned and reestablished themselves as a nation in the Middle East in 1948, then this is getting too close to the fulfillment of those promises that God made. So Satan is going to pull out the stops to do everything he can to try to destroy that particular nation and to distract Christians from supporting that nation. And, and this has been one of Satan's tools down through history is anti-Semitism. And he has uh, come in through various systems of thought, uh, both outside the church and inside the church, to try to uh, develop uh, the theologies that Christians would buy into that were inherently anti-Semitic. And even though you have many people who are amillennial or postmillennial hold to uh, various forms of replacement theology that may not be overtly anti-Semitic, they hold to a form of interpret interpreting the Bible 
that is a seedbed for this. Because if God is through with Israel, and there's no future for Israel, and God is never again going to work through Israel, which is what these systems say, then it doesn't matter what we do with Israel. Whatever ha- is happening in the in the land of Israel, the uh, modern nation of Israel that was founded in 1948, all the things that are going on over there have absolutely nothing to do with God's plan and purposes for mankind. And so as a nation, we should just virtually ignore Israel. They're the source of the problem, so who cares? And that leads to a the modern form of anti-Semitism, which is anti-Zionism. And it, it cloaks this, this anti-Semitic uh, movement. So Israel, even though Israel is in a time of, of uh, rejection of God, even though they're in a time of spiritual darkness, they're in a time of apostasy, they are still God's chosen people, and God's promises will still be fulfilled in relationship to them so that Christians... And those who are influenced by biblical Christianity should still have a a certain positive uh, view of Israel and Jews. And this has been particularly true of the uh, evangelical Christianity that had its roots in the United States of America. It's interesting to note the the fact that in, in Europe, Christians have been generally opposed to the uh, establishment of a Jewish state in Israel. They have had a, been marked by a history of centuries of anti-Semitism uh, that is as a result of the fact that they've had historically an amillennial, postmillennial view of Bible prophecy and uh, understanding of uh, the kingdom of God. But the United States was founded on different principles. The Puritans that came to America, even though there were some that were on-mill and some that were post-mill, some of the most influential Puritans that came, for example, the Mather family up in, uh, up in New England and Boston, were premillennial, and they wrote a tremendous amount. And there were a uh, vast majority of Puritans in America were premillennial, and they understood that, God, that the Jews were still God's chosen people and that there was still a future plan for Israel. This laid a foundation in, uh, in the thought of the American uh, colonies that was very sympathetic to Jews. So our doors were open for Jews to come to America to live, to have freedom, to establish businesses here, and to establish, this, establish themselves here. From the early days of the founding of this uh, republic, you had uh, presidents and other leaders in Congress and in the judiciary who understood that God had a particular plan for the future of Israel and that the Jews had a right to their uh, traditional historic homeland in Israel and were sympathetic to establishing that. At the same time in the 19th century, you had the influence of a number of conservative evangelicals in the British government that brought that about. But this caused an overreaction and hostility as, as Christian theology changed at the end of the uh, 1800s and into the early 1900s. You had the shift to uh, the social gospel. By the way, there's a, a rise of the uh, a rebirth of the social gospel today. 
And if you pay attention to what's being written, there are those out there who are trying to regenerate the old social gospel that the purpose for the church isn't, re, isn't redemptive in the sense of uh, proclaiming the gospel of Christ, but its purpose is to, to, in the sense that Christ died on the cross for the sins of people, but the, the purpose for the church is simply to uh, make society better, to help the poor and feed the sick and these kinds of cultural things which is, and social action that just completely leaves the cross uh, behind. And uh, in our politics today, uh, with the influence of the so-called religious right over the last uh, 30 years, and there's a lot of people who think that they've had a lot of influence. Frankly, if you look at the culture around us today and the culture in 1980, do you really think the religious right has had any influence whatsoever? No, that's an untenable position. They've tried, but they really haven't done anything to stem the tide of paganism and anti-Christianity in this country. It's interesting that uh, fundament, those who were called fundamentalists in the early early 20th century because they believed in the fundamentals of the Bible, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the infallibility of Scripture, miracles including the virgin birth, uh, literal second return of Christ. Those were the fundamentals of the faith. That was the hom- almost the homogenous belief of all Christians up through the end of the American uh, war between the states, otherwise known as the War of Northern Aggression. That was the mindset. This country was, was, was and, and what happened in the fundamentalist modernist controversy is the mainline denominations won. Those who believed the Bible was the word of God lost. They lost the churches. They lost the institutions. They lost the colleges. They lost the seminaries. They lost the money. They lost the mission boards. They lost the endowments. They lost the trust funds. All that got lost, and they were marginalized, and everybody acted like, well, they just sort of disappeared off the face of the earth. Actually, they didn't. Uh, they were still very active. It just that they had lost their mouthpiece, and that didn't start coming back until the 60s. But during that, that vacuum period between the late 20s and the early 70s, the whole whole of society shifted into a secular, where it was dominated by a secular atheistic mindset. And so when you come to the end of the 70s, and once again the the evangelicals, the Bible-believing conservatives, let me say it that way, have have now rebuilt. They have churches, they have seminaries, they have institutions of higher learning, they have regained some of their financial capabilities. All of a sudden, they're marginalized. And this is why you had the reaction in the in the 80s with the attempts to recover influence because up until the 19-teens and 1920s, this country was ruled, run, operated for the most part by people who believed the Bible was the word of God and who believed in a substitutionary tone of Christ. I'm not saying everybody's a, everybody is, was a believer, but I'm saying that that was the heartbeat of the culture. But that changed in the early 20th, early 20th century. And so what many evangelicals were simply trying to do in the 70s and 80s 
Uh, maybe it was the wrong way to go about it, whatever. That's another issue. But what they were trying to do is regain a place at the table, that, and the table had been theirs until the late 1900s. So that's just one of the ways in which Satan has sought to influence things because with these, with liberal Christianity, with the social gospel, with these non-biblical approaches to Christianity, you had the opening for anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. But there was still a residual effect from that so that in 1948, despite the advice or in, in complete contradiction to the advice of his State Department and all of his advisors, uh, Harry Truman immediately recognized the existence of the State of Israel. Why? Well, because of his upbringing. When he was taught in Sunday school, when he was a kid growing up and at his mother's knee and his reading of the Bible was that the Jews had a right to the land. And so it was that kind of residual impact that affected the thinking of people like Truman. It affected the thinking in England of people like Balfour and others who were at the head of state in the early, in late 1800s, early 1900s. So that is one of Satan's uh, major strategies is to destroy Israel and to destroy the existence of Israel today. And if he can destroy every Jew on the planet, then he will uh, be able to show that God cannot fulfill his promises. So these are just some of the ways in which Satan is attacking. All that just simply by way of introduction. So in terms of introduction, I have about what do I have four points. First was direct, the review of direct and indirect attacks. Second, the goals and objectives of these indirect attacks. And third, the insidious danger of demon influence. The insidious danger of demon influence. The reason demon influence is so insidious is because you think in terms of demon influence a lot more than you think you do. Every single one of you. What determines the difference is how much of the Word of God you have learned and you are applying in your thinking, how much it has changed both the content and the shape of how you think. Now, that's where it gets difficult because it's hard enough to think, and most people don't want to think, but when you come to this point, you have to start thinking about how you think, and that just gets too abstract, and let's just go home and watch Oprah. But that's what the Bible presents. We come to a very important verse on this, which is in James chapter 3, verses 13 down through 16. You might want to open your Bibles to this passage and at least underline uh, these verses. Think about them a little bit. James is contrasting the wisdom that comes from the Scripture and the wisdom that comes from society from culture around them. Now, of course, remember he's living in a world where wisdom has a particular uh, significance and nuance in Greek culture. It is philosophical. It is intellectual. It has to do with a body of thought that has sought to understand and organize the creation, organize and understand nature, how we know what we know, trying to pierce 
uh, the realities of the universe to come up with ultimate realities. All of these have been part and parcel of Greek intellectual endeavors since the 5th century B.C. You have the pre-Socratics, Thales, Anaximander, Anaximenes. You have, uh, then you have Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Then you have the later Epicureans and the Stoics. And all of this intellectual activity is designed to try to understand creation, understand ultimate reality, understand mankind from a non-biblical viewpoint. And so among many people in the Roman Empire at the time the New Testament was written, this was, uh, this was something that was valued. This was something that was idealized, was to be a great thinker and think in these terms, and that was classified as wisdom. However, when you get into the Bible, the concept of wisdom in the Bible doesn't have to do with abstract thought in terms of uh, understanding uh, metaphysics and epistemology and aesthetics and all of these branches of philosophy that had come out of the Greeks. Wisdom in the Bible, based on the Old Testament usage, was something that was very practical, down-to-earth, and we would just call it the application of God's eternal truth to the everyday problems, issues, challenges of life so that as we apply the eternal truths of Scripture to what we are doing, then we produce something in our lives, a testimony to God that has beauty, has value, and has eternal significance. This was summarized under the term chokhmah in the Old Testament, and it is the idea of wisdom or skill, and it ultimately is skillful living in terms of the application of Bible doctrine. Now, when James is writing in James 3.13, he asks a rhetorical question of this somewhat uh, confused and carnal audience. He says, who among you is wise and understanding, who is claiming to be wise, to understand truth? Well, let, he says, let him show by his good behavior, and here, of course, he's alluding back to the discussion he's already had in chapter 1 and 2, that if you hear the word of God, you apply the word of God. Don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer also, the King James says. simply means that's not being involved in terms of Christian service, which is good. It's talking about simply application of what you learn. If you're taught that giving is to be based on grace and that it's a responsibility of every believer, then you apply that in terms of your own life. You don't just say, oh, that was a good lesson. I agree with that. Go home and say, be warm and be filled. Wasn't that great? Let's go watch a football game. There's application. So the question, so he asks the question among you is wise and understanding. Let him show by his good behavior, that is application, his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Contrast. James is filled with trying to show what the truth is by contrasting it with the pagan ideas dominating in the culture and the pagan ideas that are popular in the uh, congregation. And we often learn that way by juxtaposition of truth with error. Often Satan's errors are a mixture of 98% truth and 2% error, but the 2% error completely changes the significance of the other 98%. 
and protein may be good for you, but you don't want to put uh, 2%, have a 2% solution of, of uh, rattlesnake venom, which is protein, uh, in water and drink that. Water is good for you. It's 98% water and 2% rattlesnake venom, but protein is good for you, but you don't want to take that mixture and drink it. Uh, that's not going to be healthy. So James tries to create this sort of... Uh, uh, intellectual topographical map here where you can see in relief the difference between truth and its implications and error and its implications. So he says, uh, let him show by his good behavior, in other words, apply wisdom. And in contrast, if you have bitter jealousy, Selfish ambition in your heart. Notice he focuses on mental attitude sins as the core issue. He's not talking about overt sins. He's not honing in on sexual sins. He's not honing in on whatever the social sins of the day are, whether that involves racism today. That's the big evil. You know, Jesus died for everything, but he certainly didn't die, if you, die for you if you use the N-word. Um, you know, these are the things that are happening today, and, and these kinds of things has been typical of the distortion of a lot of even uh, uh, American-type Christianity since the early 1800s is to pick out five or six social sins, and you just make those uh, bigger and badder than everything else. And if you own a slave, if you were a slave owner in the 1850s, then... Um, uh, Yankee Christians wouldn't give a dime to the denominational foreign mission board because they weren't going to support some uh, southern slaveholder because slavery was almost an unforgivable sin. Later on, it was child labor. At other times, it was uh, not letting women vote. At other times, it's uh, different things. You know, nowadays, if you if you smoke or if you use certain racial epithets or whatever, these are worse than anything else. And these are determined by society, not by the Word of God. And of course, you get into a lot of legalistic Christian churches. Sexual sins are the worst thing that can possibly happen. But when you look at the Word of God, the worst sins are the sins in the mind, the mental attitude. And as we'll see, that's because this is or the mental attitude. It's where everything starts. And that's the orientation to the thinking of Satan. So James says, if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your heart. Heart here is a term that refers to the core of your soul. That is where thinking takes place, where your deep-seated beliefs are. We use the word heart often in various phrases. We talk about the heart of an issue. We're talking about the core of that issue, you go to the grocery store and you buy hearts of palm. This is what comes out of the center of the, the palm tree. This is the idea, and the heart is that which is in the center of something. It's not using it as an allusion to the uh, organ in your in your chest, which is circulating blood. It's talking of using it in the sense of that which is at the very center or core of thinking. So, if you have Jealousy and ambition at the core of your thought system, that is what's driving you, motivating you. So he says, don't be arrogant, because that's part of arrogance, and lie against the truth. See, he treats the truth as a, as a monolithic absolute. 
that is something that is so hard to get across. You try to communicate with anybody who's 35 and under the concept there that there is a singular the truth that you must conform to is 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 something that hardly gets past their ears. They just can't understand it because they have been inculcated. They have been brainwashed in the their their uh, training in our culture to believe that anybody who believes there is one singular truth that organizes everything is on par with a Nazi. You know, there was a statement that was in an advertisement some years ago in Time Magazine ran a series for, I think it was Volkswagen, but I may be wrong there, but it was a fold-out ad, very expensive ad, and they quoted different celebrities and key people in the culture talking about different change, ran for several months. And there was this quote from Gene Roddenberry, who the, was the uh, uh, originator, creator of Star Trek. And he made the comment that, well, one day we hope that people who believe that there's only one God or one way to God are as obsolete as people who believe that there's only, only one truth. This is what dominates everything in our culture. You can't talk to people... If you believe in a monolithic, absolute one truth that organizes and gives meaning to everything, you can't communicate to people who don't believe that. You think you do, but you really can't, and you're just self-deceived if you think you're having any level of communication with people like that. So the Bible always talks about the fact that there is one truth. Then James goes on to say this wisdom, that is this wisdom that produces arrogance and bitterness and jealousy, this is a wisdom that is contradictory to the wisdom of the Bible. Now, the Bible is very simple. It's either, it's either biblical or it's wrong. That, there's only two options. Now, option two there, that it's wrong, may have many different facets. You may have a whole host of different views. You can have pantheism and panentheism and atheism and Hinduism, and, and you can have uh, Islam and all these and various philosophies, rationalism, empiricism, uh, mysticism, Cartesianism, uh, existentialism, postmodernism, all these different isms, but they're all just different facets of the same false system of thought. And over against that stands the Bible. Now, whenever somebody makes a statement like that, the, if you are, have been taught by your culture how to think, then your reaction at some point is saying, you know, he's just making this oversimplistic. You know, this is just too black and white for me. That, that's not the way life is. It's not black and white like that. No, that's what the Bible says. It's black and white like this. Either you get on the ark or you're going to drown. That was true back in Genesis chapter 6. You know, it's black and white. You're on the ark or you're dead. You know, it was true uh, at the uh, time of the Passover. Either you put the blood on the doorpost or your oldest boy is going to die. That's it. There's no other options. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. You know, there's no alternative. It is the Bible is black and white. And this passage here really hits us between... The eyes, because James says that this wisdom that uh, is, is that is typical of human viewpoint thought is not from above, but it is, and he uses three adjectives to describe it. 
First of all, it's earthly. Secondly, it's natural. And third, it's demonic. Now, let me just talk about those three words because they're very important. The first is it's earthly, and he uses this word earthly because it's showing that this is something that is time-bound that doesn't get out of the boundaries of space and time. See, what the Bible presents is a view that God is the creator God who stands completely over against all of his creation. He is eternal. He is infinite. He is not bound by space or time. He is not in the creation. He is outside of the creation. He created everything that is. There is nothing you can even think of that wasn't created by him, including what you ever, whatever it is uh, you're thinking about and you're very thinking. Everything comes from God. Everything is created by him. He's over against everything. But this term earthly is, is, it emphasizes the finitude of all other competing systems of truth. They are based on the finite. They come out of rationalism, empiricism, or mysticism, and they're products of the finite mind of man. So that human wisdom, no matter what the system is, whether it's uh, Platonism, Aristotelianism, Cartesianism, whether it's uh, the philosophy of John Locke, whether it's Kantianism, whether it's Kierkegaardian existentialism or Nietzschean nihilism or uh, modern uh, post, uh, current postmodernism, let's say, no matter what it is, it's finite. And that means there's always a whole host of data beyond their limits that can change and reorient uh, whatever it is they've come up with on the basis of their finite thinking. second word that he uses to describe it is translated in most Bibles, natural, but this is a poor translation. It's the Greek word sukikos, based on the Greek noun suke, meaning soul. Now, we believe that human beings were created initially with three components, body, soul, and spirit. When Adam sinned, that human spirit was lost because that's the component that orients the soul to God. So the spirit, that human spirit is lost, and that's what's given birth to in the rebirth of regeneration, that, that element of, that orients your soul toward God. So the, the natural man is the soulish man who doesn't have that spirit component, that regenerative component that allows him to understand the things of God. This is what the word is used in a couple other places in the New Testament. One of the most significant is 2 Corinthians 2.14, which says the natural man, the soulish man, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. And in the context of 1 Corinthians 2, the things of the Spirit of God is the content of revelation. In other words, the unbeliever can't truly comprehend the things that God has revealed in his word because they are spiritually discerned. They are only understood if, you have the, if you're regenerate. You have to be born again before you can ever truly have a component in your soul that will help you understand the word. And then in the church age, we have an additional uh, element, which is the indwelling Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, guide, and the one who leads us in the spiritual life. So we have, let me get back to my slide, there we are. It, it's natural, that means it's the product of fallen human beings who have no clue what divine viewpoint truth is. So for, first, it's all human wisdom is finite. 
Secondly, it's the best man can do. It may be brilliant. It may be sophisticated. Uh, it may be uh, intriguing. It may be couched in terms that are very attractive. But guess what? It's the best that fallen man can do, and it doesn't even come close to truly explaining, organizing the data of creation. And then the last part, it's demonic. Now, let me make this real clear. Platonism is demonic. Aristotelianism is demonic. Cartesianism is demonic. Lockeanism is demonic. Kantianism is demonic. Hegelianism is demonic. Marxism is demonic. To the degree that something is not biblical, it is demonic. That's what this passage is saying. Postmodernism is demonic. Human philosophies, human religions are all demonic. Now, what does that mean, that it's demonic? What it means is that it partakes of the same basic core elements of the thinking of Satan. You're either going to think like God or you're going to think like Satan. That's it. That's the same black and white issue. You're going to think like God on the basis of divine viewpoint revelation, or you're going to think like Satan. So... When we come to this aspect of it, we come to our, my fourth point in my uh, introduction, and that is that these indirect attacks of Satan occur through thought systems. Religion, idolatry, the, the, the overt idolatry of idols of wood and stone and clay in the Old Testament all the way through to the contemporary, sophisticated, intellectual idols of modern man. Philosophical systems. Whatever the philosophical system is, if the starting point is inside creation, it's idolatrous because it's taking some element in creation and exploding it up so big that that will then explain everything that is in creation. So... Uh, all your philosophical systems are built on a presupposition that man apart from God can understand reality. And that's what Satan is saying. Is you don't need God. You just need me. You don't need God. You just need your own innate abilities, and you can come to truth apart from me. Now, think about it. If Adam had tried to come to truth Apart from God, he could have discovered a lot of lowercase t truth in the garden. These trees are conifers. These trees are deciduous. These trees have fruits. These trees have nuts. These trees don't get very big. These trees get very... He could have classified all kinds of things in the garden. But the one important piece of data that he needed to properly organize, categorize, and classify everything... The one important piece of data that, that gave meaning to all of the uh, hundreds and hundreds of observations he could have made is that one little piece that came from Revelation, that there's one tree you can't eat from because when you do, you're going to die. He couldn't learn that through empiricism. He couldn't learn that through rationalism. He couldn't contemplate his navel and generate that from mysticism. He had to get it from an external source. And see... All these human philosophies from Plato all the way up to postmodernism, they all come out of a basic presupposition that man can find meaning and happiness in life. He can understand reality without starting from revelation. 
and that's called idolatry. And when you start with an autonomous presupposition and you deny revelation as your foundation for thought, then you are building an idolatrous system that ultimately is going to glorify man and is in contradiction of the word. Now, it's going to have a lot of truth in it because Satan's the master of counterfeit. And his counterfeits have a certain amount of truth. People don't buy something that's, you know, if, if I came up to you and I said, you know, I want to buy your house. I got a, I got a hundred dollar bill here and I gave you a hundred dollar bill from a monopoly set. You're not going to take it because you know, you, uh, uh, that's false. But if I have a very good, sophisticated, modern technology produced counterfeit U.S. Federal Reserve note, and I offer that to you, and you don't, you don't have the sophistication and the knowledge to spot the problem, then you're going to get suckered into thinking that you have something real. And see, that's what happens when you live in a society that doesn't teach people to think, to think critically and to analyze, then they get suckered into all kinds of things. And, you know, you, the, one of the core problems is that you have, you have an enemy inside you called a sin nature. And this sin nature dominates your thinking from the time you're born. And I said, well, I was just such a sweet little kid. Well, you were just such a sweet little sinner. <laughs> but the Bible says that you were totally depraved and corrupt from the time that you were born. You've been influenced by this sin nature, which is motivated by these lust patterns. That's your prime motive is uh, for power, for meaning, for control, for recognition, all of these various lusts. Uh, dominate, and they're going to move you depending on your background, your culture, your training, uh, your own uh, predispositions. Everybody's a little different in a couple of different directions. Uh, some of you will operate in the area of strength, human good, where you produce a lot of good things, try to impress people and God. The other pole is towards personal sins in your area of weakness. Then we trend in two opposing directions. One is towards asceticism, legalism, and intellectually this manifests itself in rationalism. And this leads to moral degeneracy. The trend in the opposite direction leads towards licentiousness, lasciviousness, antinomianism, because what's this, this trend is towards an absence of authority, an absence of control, so when it comes to intellectual activity, it's antinomianism, it's irrationalism, and it's mysticism, and this leads to moral degeneracy. And this, this corrupt nature that you have has an affinity to Satan's thinking. And so part of what demon influence does is it provides a rationale and a support system for your sin nature. Because Satan knows all about the corruption in your soul, and he wants to generate things that are going to appeal to it and attract it like a magnet so that uh, you're going to want to go in that direction. That's the area that's going to feel good and going to feel comfortable, and it, that's the way you, you think life is going to work. And um, I've heard it observed that probably 90% of the time, the option that is not going to feel good and the option that is not going to be in your comfort zone 
is uh, probably the right option. And when you make decisions based on what makes you comfortable, what makes you feel good, what seems to make life work easier for you, that's probably not uh, the option that is consistent with the will of God. So, in conclusion, I'll say there's two characteristics to Satan's thinking. We'll come back, hit all this, expand it more in the coming uh, couple of weeks because there's just a lot here. Uh, two things that <clears throat> characterize Satan's thinking. The first is autonomy. We'll have a little alliteration this morning, autonomy and antagonism. The first is autonomy. The man that See, Satan in his rebellion thought he could make it independently of God. And that's what autonomy is, that, he, that the creature is going to become a law unto himself, and he's going to be able to make life work apart from God. He's going to find happiness, meaning, stability, without having to take God or the Bible very seriously. That's autonomy. This is the basic orientation of the sin nature that I can make life work apart from God because it's all about me. If you don't believe it's all about you, just look at any baby. It's all about them. You are the same way. Trust me. And the second orientation is antagonism. When we look at Genesis chapter 3 and we see God come in the garden, the basic thing that happens is that they're afraid. They're afraid and they run from God. The basic orientation of our heart toward God is fear. Uh, you, we try to run from him. We think that he's out to make our life miserable, that God just wants to punish us and judge us, that he is out to destroy us. And our heart is antagonistic to God because we basically fear him because in our heart of hearts we know we're corrupt, condemned, fallen sinners. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't exercise positive volition. But I want you to think profoundly and deeply about the example of the Apostle Paul. None of us would say that Paul had negative volition at God consciousness. But see, he's positive to God. But what happens to Paul is Paul gets immersed in religion, demon influence. He gets immersed in the rigorous legalistic system of Pharisaism, and he is out attacking and persecuting Christ. He's persecuting the body of Christ. Jesus appears to him and said, Paul, how long are you going to kick against the goads? Well, the reason he's kicking against the goads is because he fears God at the core of his soul orientation. We don't want God. He didn't want God. There was an element that was positive, but there's this other element in our soul that just hates and fears God. And so that part of the sin nature gets attracted to the thinking of the cosmic system, which is what happened to Paul. He got uh, attracted to the rigorous legalism and self-righteousness of the Pharisaic system. The only solution to all of this is to have our thinking overhauled by the Word of God. That's what Romans, Paul says in Romans, that we, Romans 12, 2, that we are not to be conformed to the world system, but we are to be transformed by the renovation of our mind. Now, if we're not supposed to be conformed to the world system, you better understand how the world system is influencing you or you won't spot how you're being conformed. 
In other words, you have to do some real hardcore cultural analysis on yourself because you can't, you, and, and it's very, it's difficult because we're so close to who we are and to our cultural upbringing that it's hard for us to distance ourselves to have the objectivity to see how we're influenced by the idolatry and the demon influence of our own culture. And the only way that that can be exposed is by the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and taught in such a way that it helps us to understand how we are being just eaten up by our own sin nature and our own desire to restructure so much of the Word of God into our own comfort zone. Preview of coming attractions. This is a a slide Charlie developed using the illustration of an amoeba. The amoeba represents, uh, in the slide he calls it unbelief, it represents the whole panorama of cosmic thought that indoctrinates our soul prior to the time that you're saved. The little yellow dot is presentation of biblical truth. See, what's supposed to happen is when you learn the Word of God, it transforms your thinking. But what often happens is because we're so indoctrinated by the thinking of our culture, by the cosmic system around us, that what happens is we can easily fall into the trap of reinterpreting the doctrine into the categories established by the cosmic thinking that dominates our culture. Now, if you want to see examples of this, you go sit in on not a secular college campus, but go to some Bible college or seminary anywhere in this country and look at 18 or 19-year-olds that have come out of teach-nothing churches who have basically uh, absorbed all of the postmodern relativism of the culture around them, and then they go sit in a university classroom, I mean, a Bible college classroom, and have a professor from an older generation who believes in biblical absolutes, teach them, and they go berserk. And I'm talking about the better Bible colleges and seminaries. I'm not talking about places like Harvard or Yale or Princeton or the old schools. I'm talking about the ones that you think of as the flagship schools of modern evangelicalism. The students sitting in the classroom are so postmodern, they drive the old professors crazy because they don't come to the classroom with a presupposition of absolutes. They come to the classroom with a presupposition of relativism, and they just want to learn the Bible, and just like any good Hindu, they want to take the thinking of the Bible and add it to their panorama of gods rather than overhaul their thinking with the truth of Scripture. But the truth of Scripture begins with a recognition God has spoken, and he provides the solution to all of our problems. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to examine uh, these things this morning, to be challenged with the fact that that we need to think more clearly, more precisely about how we think and what we think, and that you have given us a system of thinking uh, in, in the Word. In the 66 books of the Old Testament and New Testament, you have revealed your thought and we have the mind of Christ, and that we have the Spirit of God who indwells us, who enables us to understand these things, and it is our part of our job after salvation to learn to think as you think and to let God the Holy Spirit transform, renovate our thinking. 
Father, we pray that as we study these things, we'll respond to that challenge. We also pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is not saved, anyone here this morning that is never put their trust in Jesus Christ, anyone here who has uh, no sense of hope or certainty of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. You need to realize that as a creature, you are a fallen creature under condemnation, and you can do absolutely nothing to save yourself or to make yourself savable. The only thing that you can do is to recognize that Christ died for you, and through faith alone in Christ alone, you have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.